0: It was great to be here at Christchurch. I always feel amongst friends. Uh, me and Rich were actually uh, compatriots through the sort of training process when you become a priest, I think many years ago now, too many years to mention. Uh, it's great to see Nicola here and see what God is doing. I think I've done quite a few deanery chapter meetings and various things here over the years. It's always really encouraging uh, just to see the church alive all across the city of London. Um, but I wonder if kind of COVID and the general kind of the extension has been quite exhausting. Have you tried Have you tried, or have you struggled to get yourself back up again to kind of get the wheels moving? It's been quite a challenge. Um, it, I, I find it quite difficult to kind of get going again. And, and I think part of the struggle has been a sense, you know, you, you felt they like had momentum. And then suddenly the brakes were on for a couple of years and then you've got to kind of regain your momentum. I'm finding I'm, I don't like to go out as much as I used to like. You know, I, I find I want to sort of stay in a bit more. Um, I find stuff that used to be kind of easy, feels a little bit more awkward now. And, and it's quite hard isn't it? To kind of get going, but you've got to push yourself. And, um, you know, I, I, I find that really difficult. I've got quite exhausted by motivational memes. Um, in, in the morning when I've got, I've got three small children, and I'm sort of trying there in the morning, I'm trying to put enough water in them to make sure they don't kind of pass out in a heat wave. And, and you know, enough cornflakes. My son likes crisps for breakfast, and I'm desperately not trying to give him crisps, but somehow he will disappear to a cupboard and appear with a packet of crisps. Um, you know, I'm running around the kitchen trying to brush their hair and, like, get their school bags together. And when I finally get a couple of seconds to sort of sit down and have a cup of tea, myself I sadly probably am scrolling Instagram or something similar and and I'll get distracted by cats in in hats saying something like um, don't wish for it work for it or if you want something you've never had you've got to do something you've never done Uh, or get motivated by the fear of being average I've got I think I've got an example with me here yeah you can do it You know, it's it's funny, isn't it? In those moments, you you look at those things and and you kind of, you scoff at them. You go, oh, come on. You know, really? Like, that's enough. You just, you kind of pass them by. Because it's, you know, it's too much, isn't it? First thing in the morning. And I I scoff at those inane statements, but they rattle around somewhere in my brain and have this sort of deep sense of fear that they maybe are right. Maybe I'm really only as good as the work that I put in. So I, I cycle my children to school and, you know, we kind of land at the school gates and I'm busy like, locking up bikes and putting helmets away. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, yes, Lord, like bless the kids today. you know, have a really great day, kids. Remember, you know, just have a really super time. Just be yourself, you know, do your best. And, and, and just as they're sort of walking off sort of into the distance, I, I'll shout something back like, Do something amazing today that your future self will thank you for. I'm like, oh my goodness, like, where did that come from? It sort of rose up from somewhere deep within me, a motivational cat meme. And I kind of launched it over them. And they like look at me and they feel the weight of my expectation upon them. I I didn't mean it, kids. I didn't mean it. Just be yourself. Just relax. Take it easy. You know, the church in Galatia had similar problems to, to me. You know, they knew God's grace story. Uh, and yet somehow something within them couldn't quite give up the idea that they had to work for it. They had just to try that little bit harder. Uh, They they, they had to work for their value. They they had to work for their approval. They had to somehow work for their significance. They just couldn't quite get grace. I find it hilarious, this letter to the Galatians. Can you imagine getting a letter like this from St. Paul? You know, he, he doesn't really, like, pull any punches, does he? He's not like, oh, hi, Will. How are you doing? You know, how are the family? Hope things are going well. And, you know, things, things are good for you, I hope. You know, let me tell you a bit about what's been going on for me. He's straight in with, I'm astonished that you've given up the gospel of grace. You're like, oh, my goodness. Like, so overwhelming, so direct. But here in verse 6, that's what he's saying. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You know, I honestly don't think there's been a harder time to receive grace, that unmerited love and restoration from God. And again, as we say, this this sort of season of like, I need to get my effort back into gear. Somehow community reminds us that it's okay to be us. One of the beautiful things about the church is we're all so diverse and unique in our own ways, and we kind of look around and watch people operating and think, oh, well, if it's all right for them, it's it's probably all right for me. But when we're on our own, it sort of feels otherness. Like, oh, I'm not sure if they really will welcome me back. I'm not really sure if I actually have got a place in this community. I heard some quite frightening statistics about church decline over COVID, and I'm kind of calling to the internet, if you're out there, Christians, come back to church. And I'm thinking, have people really abandoned church on the basis of the fact it's now inconvenient? What was somehow convenient two years ago isn't, in, isn't convenient anymore. I don't think that's it. I think people are slightly afraid about re-entering a community that they think they're not good enough for. They're thinking, oh, maybe I've, maybe I've just, you know, I'm just not quite there yet. Or my lockdown sourdough didn't pass the test. You know, I'm going to be humiliated or I'm going to be excluded. How can I gain my confidence to get back into the room again? It's funny, isn't it, how quickly we can run away from the unmerited love and restoration of God. You know, in London, I reckon they have, like, special hoses when you go to Homebase. They, like, make hoses just for Londoners. They're just generally shorter than hoses for the rest of the population. So you go to London, you go to, like, B&Q, and you buy your hose, and you plug it in, and then, and it's shorter, so we all have gardens that are like a postage stamp. So you can still get to the end of your hose before you've reached the end of your garden. It's like, it's like a statement of power as you start sort of watering your geraniums from a distance. You're like, yes, I've got a really big garden because obviously I've come to the end of my hose. I had this experience in my little garden in, uh, in, in just south of the river. And, uh, you know, so there I am trying to, like, water the plants at the very end of the garden in a heat wave. I'm, like, spraying the plants right. The, I've, got, uh, I've got this, you know, this c- couple of, like, things climbing up the little fence at the back. I'm spraying them, trying to save them. And then and I'm pulling the hose, and then suddenly the water goes off. And uh, anyway, I've like, oh my goodness! I've like, such a big garden. I've got to go back to, i to walk back to the tap, find out what's going on. Now, because the tap is hidden slightly around the wall, I'm thinking that that potentially my son, who this is a regular occurrence, has turned off the tap at the wall and is hiding. He thinks it's really funny. So I go back expecting to find him, uh, but no, there's just a kink in the pipe. And I've got to kind of undo my very short hose to enable the, so I can again feel like I've got a large London garden and, I, and I'm doing quite well. You know, th- this is our experience. This is, this is our experience of the Christian life in so many ways. God has not turned off the tap of grace, but somehow as we try and pull the hose, there's a kink in the pipe. Like our efforts to kind of go, yes, oh, i have got to be better. I've got to do more. I've got to achieve more. Somehow, breaks the flow of God's grace in our lives not that God has turned off his grace to us but we've somehow blocked the pipe that enables God's grace to flow through us and this is really what Paul's saying to the church in Galatia you know how did you exchange this incredible gospel which we gave to you as a fulfillment of the law that you were struggling to complete and yet somehow discard it for the sake of going back to what you could not achieve like, it's a kind of madness. You're know, overwhelmed by this desire to do it yourself when Christ has done it for you. Why on earth would you want to try and do that? In verses three to five, Paul says to the Galatians, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to rescue us forever and ever. You know, that, that is a really brilliant sort of doxology at the beginning. It's like, you know, it's, it's what teachers do in your kids' books. They put everything in caps. <laughs> you know, like, this is the answer to the question that you haven't even answered yet. <laughs> do this and you will live. Paul's basically writing to the church of Glacier and saying, uh, this is the answer to the question. Now let's try and work out where you went wrong. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why you don't need perfectionism anymore in your life. He gave himself up for our sins to rescue us forever and ever. It's so hard to get hold of. Yes, we have it in head knowledge, but how do we outwork it in heart knowledge? How do we make it practical and real? The tap of God's grace will never be turned off, and yet this kink in the pipe somehow stems the flow in our own lives. In verse seven, Paul says that this different gospel is really no gospel at all. Uh, the, the word for gospel, which is a unique word to the Bible, hoangelion, means good news. And so when, when Paul's saying this is no good news, he's, it's a sort of a new word. It's a sort of conjunction of the negative of a word that's been created to explain grace. This is not good news. This is, this is an anti-gospel that we're living You know, in my work in emotional health within the context of the church, I I found two things to be true. One is that the church is laden with false guilt. Most people sitting in the chairs feel badly about themselves, even though Christ came to forgive us from all sin and make us righteous as the noonday sun. And and secondly, that actually the church still believes somehow, despite the fact that Jesus died on a cross, which seems to be evident everywhere in the life of the church, we all still believe that we have to die as well that we have to kind of do it ourselves, that we've got to kind of work it out. We have to somehow get credit with God aside from Christ's death and resurrection so we'd be worthy for participation in the life of the church. You know, and, and, and I, I want to say right now, it's wonderful that there are people are volunteering in this church. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Rich is looking at me slightly concerned at the moment, just in case. I'm going to suggest that you all just relax and don't do anything. <laughs> that's not the purpose of this talk, just to be absolutely clear, in caps lock. The purpose of this talk is to say everything that we do flows out of the receipt that we have of God's grace. That actually everything we do, we do as an act of worship and thanksgiving because of what God has already done in our lives. Suddenly, the teams that we're part of, the volunteering activities that we're engrossed in, don't feel burdensome anymore. No one has control. No one feels wounded when they're not on the rotor. Why? Because it's all an act of service and thanksgiving. Ultimately, we don't need it to make ourselves feel good. We do it because we already feel good. When we already know grace, we can serve with kind of freedom and passion because ultimately it doesn't matter to us. But if we're trying to serve in order that we might know grace, well, then certainly you better stay away from that coffee machine because that's my business. You better not touch that bass guitar because if that's the way I'm going to get into heaven, then I'm going to play the bass. (laughs) You know, whatever it is that we believe we're doing for the sake of finding some other grace... We're undoing ourselves. And I'd love to see the Anglican church more alive with celebration and service than the duty of service. Actually, what would it look like to make everything we do an act of celebration because it all flows from that pipe of God's grace to us? We're not pulling so hard that we create a kink in the pipe. We're just saying, God, let your grace flow. I want to be part of your grace story. It's really fitting that Paul describes it as that different good news. Because, you know, it's quite funny how people still feel pretty positive about perfectionism. It's like, it's a different good news. When we talk about perfectionism in the church, people are going, no, no, no. I think we're supposed to be, like, a bit perfectionistic. I mean, after all, God is holy, and I'm supposed to be kind of holy like God? It doesn't actually, doesn't someone say, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect? I think that's, that's a kind of gospel of perfectionism that we should all subscribe to. It's interesting, isn't it, with, um, with the job application, This is the perfectionism scale. You see, there's a difference between perfect and perfectionism. Perfect is like 100%. That's the perfect score. That's the same as excellent. But perfectionism isn't actually about a perfect score. It's about a mentality that says, I am never enough. It is never enough. Nothing is ever enough. You know, if if 100% is perfect, you can carry on the scale ad infinitum, because perfectionism will never be satisfied. And the church in Glacier were struggling with this idea that they had to do more, do better, and be more perfect all the time in order that they might win God's grace, when actually how perfect is perfect enough? Perfectionism is a mentality. And if we believe somehow that it's okay or it's helping us, then we're sorely misled. It's funny though, isn't it? You think about the job application and the employers here in the house? No. A few, I'm sure you're keeping your hands down in case I say something that'll upset you. Um, But when you send out an employment pack, you'll know that you send out, you know, the first bit, that's easy. You know, what did you get in your GCSEs? Normally it's easy. And then, and what did you get in your A-levels? And then did you, you have you got a tertiary education? It's all quite straightforward and factual. But then you get these two really difficult boxes. The first one is, is that what are your strengths box? Now, especially if it's a Christian employer like the church, you've got to be quite careful here. Because, you know, if you overfill it, you look like a little arrogant, so you're probably not going to get the job. So if you're applying for a job in the church, the trick is to show enough competence to be employable, but not so much competence that you might be deemed to be proud, in which case you won't be getting the job at all. So my advice is, is to fill it about three quarters full, and then there's like you've shown that there's like an end to your gifts, but you've also shown that there are gifts that you can share. Um, the, the, other, the other more complicated box... Is the, is the weaknesses box. Now, just a word to the wise again, if you're applying for a job in the church, humility is really important. But if you overfill that box, you're basically proving that you're unemployable. Uh, and that's actually, cause of that you will never actually get the job. So be humble, but please don't overfill the weaknesses box. And you can hear the Christian struggling, what shall I put in the weaknesses box? Say too much and I won't be employed. Say nothing at all. Ah, I'll look proud again. That's the trap. So I've got to say something. Do I, what, what am I going to say that makes me look very employable and yet not, not too proud? And then there's a light bulb moment. They go, I know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a perfectionist. No, that sounds too strong. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, uh, that's, that's it. That's the good stuff, a bit of a perfectionist. That means I'm all the good bits of perfectionism. I'm gonna work long hours for low pay and get everything right. And you know straight away the vicar's going cha-ching, brilliant, you are employed. Now, I just want to encourage you in this truth that perfectionism is not good for you. It's not good for your employability. And increasingly, employers are recognizing that perfectionism isn't actually helping any teams. It's a foundation of dysfunctional teams, and it's not something that employers are actually looking for anymore. So word for the wise young people particularly, do not put, I'm a bit of a perfectionist in any of those boxes on any of your application forms. Paul describes this different good news because the church in Galatia had the same sort of idea. It's kind of good news. You know, it resonates with the old law. And, you know, I, you know, we are still into the law in a little way. We all know that the Galatians were, were kind of tempted towards secondary circumcision. We all know that the Galatians were kind of tempted not to kind of stay in relationship with wives or husbands who hadn't come to faith in the Lord. We all know that the church in Galatia were, were being kind of influenced by Judaizers who were following Paul around to try and make the church uh, more traditional, uh, more rabbinic, and more law-orientated. So there was a real battle for the heart of the church in Galatia, and that battle for the heart of the church in Galatia. Hello, Galatians, calling. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the battle for the heart and church in Galatia. They needed the right sort of communication to help them to understand that perfectionism wasn't helping them. It wasn't just not helping them; it was diverting them from the very thing that they needed, which was the grace of God. You know, perfectionism is a fun, It's a funny topic. You know, everyone everyone thinks it's kind of amusing we wouldn't laugh about kind of other struggles of the mind in the same way as we do perfectionism but you know he's got that kind of comedy element but Amanda Jenkins author of Confessions of a Raging Perfectionist commented in a recent interview you know I've struggled to give and receive grace even people who've got no faith in Christ are expressing their discontentment with perfectionism Annie Wilson Schaefer you just saw there on the screen she says that perfectionism is self-abuse of the highest order that's not that's not a small quote is it Think about that for a minute. Perfectionism is self-abuse of the highest order. It's the narrative in your head that says you will never, ever, ever, ever be enough. You know, I think about the fuel that makes London run. I think there's a lot of that in the ether. You know, people rushing and running around driven by the idea that they will never, ever, ever be enough. I got in really big trouble at New One a few years ago because uh, I was doing a main stage talk and I was praying about what I thought the Lord was bringing. This is a few years back, and, and I just—I had this real sense of revelation. Doesn't happen that often, but it was that actually that, that driven was a terrible word. Don't, don't it, it, it wasn't the right moment to actually devise a whole sermon around that idea. I think it was a moment of personal revelation, but I decided it was a moment of revelation for the whole church. And this was just at a time when the Purpose Driven Life was the most popular book on every Christian's bookshelf. So here I am at New Wine. The Lord has given me a revelation that the word driven is only used in Scripture in association with driving out demons or driving out people who defiled the temple courts. <laughs> Discuss. And it didn't go well. It was very quiet. Uh, apart from people from the Purpose Driven Church in England, who who did organize an appointment with me afterwards to defend the quarter of the word driven. I still stand by the reality that driven is only used in Scripture in negative terms. You know, what are we driven by in our lives? Are we driven by the fear that we will never, ever, ever be enough? It seems to me that Jesus only does one thing, and that's call you. He calls you into the space He calls you towards himself. He calls you towards your mission and purpose. He calls you into the center of the church, and he calls you because he's already done the work. Now, we're not entering a space that he's not already in. We're being received by him in every space that he calls us. That's that's the true gospel, not the gospel of perfectionism, which drives you forward. The gospel of grace invites you in and says, you're worthy and you're welcome because of what I've done for you on the cross. Now, if this church is going to grow, it's going to grow because the size of its welcome and because the strength of its message of grace, because our world out there is, is being driven to distraction, it's being driven to addiction, and it's being driven into division because no one feels that they're worthy and no one feels that they're welcome. But the heart of our lives and at the heart of our world is a Christ who opens his arms upon the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is what grace looks like. Psychologist Hewitt and Flett devised these uh, sort of three underpinnings of perfectionism to give it a bit more meat, if you like. And they were saying, look, perfectionism is not some sort of concept that just stands in the ether. It's about kind of high effort and good performance, Perfectionism has three sort of orientations, the self-orientated, the other-orientated, and the socially-orientated. The self-orientated perfectionists, you know, they're so busy deriding themselves, they're saying, oh, I'm not worthy, I'm not enough. And there are tons of these in the context of the church. They compare themselves against the perfect Christ and say, whoa, woe is me, I'm a sinner. But they're still woeing their sinness in an Old Testament context. They aren't saying, woe is me, I was a sinner, but I've been made righteous in Christ. They're saying, woe is me, I'm a sinner. Compare me to that Christ and I'm nothing. And we've got great theologians who've propagated an idea similar to that, that even though Christ died and has made us, renewed us and transformed us into the image of God, somehow we're still outside of the reach of grace. And then we've got other orientated perfectionists who were so displeased with themselves that they drive their disquiet and discontentment into people around them. They're like, you are terrible, you are ungodly, you are unholy, and you are unwelcome. It's a great guise if you want to feel like you're included. You just be the person behind the finger, not that side of the finger. You know, and in the context of church, we can have that too. We can be those people who kind of, I'm the steward. I steward the space. Make sure everyone is orderly. Make sure everyone knows their place. Now we can preach like that, wagging the finger, saying actually you're excluded, you're not invited, you're not involved, because actually what I'm really feeling is I'm not really worthy. One of the weird things about preachers is they often feel like they shouldn't be preaching. Uh, I I, I remember I went to this leadership conference once at Windsor Castle, and uh, I remember receiving the invite, and uh, my joy lasted for about three seconds before I thought, oh, there must have been a mistake and I said to my wife, Lou, I said, oh, well, i got this invitation to this leadership thing. And she said, oh, finally, they've realized you've got something useful to say. She's kind of, she's quite straight-talking, my wife. And, uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, maybe. Oh, like, maybe it was just, maybe it was just a mistake. So I turned up at Windsor Castle two hours early because I thought it'd be better to be, like, told I wasn't really invited, like, when no one else was looking. And I tiptoed up to the guard. I was like, oh, oh, hello. Uh, it was my Anglican vicar voice. Oh, hello. Um, I, I, uh, I, I, uh, I think I'm here for this sort of retreat thing. He said, oh, oh okay, what's your name? I was like, oh, it's Vanderhart. Hart. And so, because it's a V, you know, it's the end of the list. So he started turning over the pages. And I was already starting to walk away going, it's all right. It was a mistake. And he's like, no, no, you, you, you are on the list. You're just, you're just quite early. And I was like, oh, 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 am I? And so I sort of tiptoed into Windsor Castle started wandering around. The next couple of hours, I, I, I thought someone was going to escort me out. It's all kind of going on in my head. So I'm sure someone's going to escort me out, or the, either that or a bump into the Queen. When I finally got in the room for one of these sort of conference talks, the, the retreat leader, this guy called Pete Gregg, who's, who's, you know, a great teacher on prayer, he said, he said, can I just say, there's probably not a single person in the room who doesn't feel like a bit of a fraud but can we just get over ourselves and just start worshipping Jesus? And I looked around the room at all these leaders I really admired and respected, and they're all like nodding their heads. I was going, I thought it was only me who didn't believe that they deserved to be in the room. But every one of these church leaders don't believe they should be in the room either. That's how hard the battle for grace really is. And if we feel it, I'm sure you feel it too. Feeling like, what am I doing here? Why am I here? How can I contribute? No, I can't possibly contribute because I'm not good enough. So I'll just kind of be here and hope that no one notices me. You know, we want to say, no, come on. We might all be struggling with the Galatian problem, but actually God has called us to something greater than this. God has called us to full participation through welcome. You know, the perfectionist is trying to make the world safe by retaining control and withholding vulnerability. Perfectionism really has got nothing to do with achievement of excellence. It's just a hamster wheel of inactivity that proposes that one day there'll be a point at which we'll feel like we're really worthy of being there. But Paul asks a key question in verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God, this is the kind of the crux of really what it looks like to struggle with perfectionism, am I trying to win the approval of men, or of God, or am I trying to please men, if I was going to give Paul some feedback on this letter, I'd probably say, it's pretty clear you're not trying to please men, maybe like a few more platitudes as you start your letter next time, might help you to please more men, Paul was straight into the beef of what this really means, he's saying, guys, come on, You've really lost it. You've really lost sight of the thing that matters the most. You know, in my life, I, 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 in my ministry, I, I've, I've, I've gone from attempted complexity, because I think, well, if I'm complex and theological, then people will think I've been to Bible college. You've been to Bible. He's been to Bible college. He's all right. You know, he's, he's done anology of theology. I think that's OK. But increasingly, I felt God call me to get more and more simple, to try less and less hard. Because ultimately, am I called to please God or am I called to please men? Does it really matter at the end of the day if I'm qualified? Surely what matters is that I know what grace really is since that's the heart of everything that we do. Like, I, I, I could... You know, wow you with science and theology, I like to think. But what point would that be other than making you feel less than and me feel then greater, but still less than, since nothing really could give me access to the room that God has called me into, which is a room that I only have access to by His death and His resurrection life? You know, God wants to liberate us from these internalized judgments of perfection. Into the wonder of grace—a grace that isn't dependent on our works, but on His will. I I was cycling down Kensington High Street, and uh, it's got sort of lampposts, I guess, spread pretty closely, like almost like the pillars of the church. And and there were always posters, you know, missing, missing this, missing that, car boot sale, whatever it is. And and I was cycling, I cycled down there every day to work. And one day I'm cycling, and. There was a, quite a colourful A4 poster on like this pillar, and then like that pillar, and then maybe that pillar over there. And I'm cycling along quite fast. And it, there's a cat, another cat. I don't like cats, I have a dog. But it was another cat. And there's a cat. And so I'm like, okay, oh, here, yeah, I've got a picture of it. Here it is, I did take a picture. So leave that up, right? So th- imagine this is on the pillar. There are literally hundreds of this on the pillars. So, so I, I, I'm, I, I sense God saying to me and this might sound quite random to you but I sense God saying go and look at the poster so I'm like no so I carry on cycling and then I sense God saying again go and look at a poster so I'm like okay so I'll stop my bike and I go and read this poster now I'm thinking great it says lost a nice cat it's called disco great name it says and but then I read the small print and you might be able to see it there it's, it's, this is a genuine poster, you can see it's genuinely on Kensington High Street. It says, disco, uh, let's read it from here. Description, elderly, 17 year old. I'm not, I'm not really into cats, but wow, a 17 year old cat. So I'm thinking, maybe the cat's not really lost. Maybe the cat has died. Maybe I should call the person and say, look, I'm really sorry to point this out to you, but chances are 17 year old cat, I think I worked out that that was 84 years in equivalent. And the life expectancy of a cat is between 12 and 15 years maximum. So this guy's already running on two years of borrowed time. So but I was thinking, but what what's, it's hard to describe how many of these posters there were down Ken High Street. So there's literally hundreds. I'm thinking just in photocopying, they could have bought another cat. There are so many of these posters. So, so let's, let's get the cat back up again. Keep, keep, let's keep the cat up. So here we are. So like right, description. 17-year-olds, female, skinny tap. So I'm thinking skinny. It's not well. It's, it's a thin cat. And then it says, then it says deaf. Now I'm really. Now, I'm really thinking, you know, it's a 17 year old, deaf, skinny cat, and you're expecting to get this cat back. I could not believe this. And then, but then it says noisy, and that's great because it's obviously deaf, so it's, it, you know, it's struggling to be heard. And then, and, but it does say it's a very affectionate, friendly cat. And if you, you know, I haven't called them, but I, I'm still tempted to give them a ring and find out if they did get Disco the cat back. You know, what's really weird about this poster is, that, and as I looked at it, I just was like, God, what? And God said to me really, really directly in my mind, really, really clearly, and I don't have this experience all the time. God said, God said to me, who would try and find a cat like that? That was it. Who would try and find a cat like that? And I just had a moment of revelation. And I just said, Lord, you would. You would just, you would, you would try and find a cat like that. You, you would go after, you would put signs on every tree, this side of heaven, for any person who wasn't young, wasn't beautiful, didn't hear perfectly was skinny or lived in a large body or struggled with mental health issues or, you know, had all sorts of challenges in their life or came from a difficult socioeconomic background or, or had some nightmare going on in their life or felt unworthy or made some massive mistakes or been to prison or were in debt or whatever it was, God said, yeah, I would go. I would go. I would choose. I would call. I would put up posters. I'd do whatever I could. Because that cat is welcome, and so are you. You know, we have such a judgmental world. We live in such a performance-orientated life. No one puts up posters anymore for anyone who doesn't seem to fit the bill. Even our own judgments are against ourselves. If we were putting ourselves on a poster like that and sticking it all over the lampposts of South Ken... We wouldn't think anyone would bother to call. We'd be like, take them down, you're wasting your time. We'd edit ourselves out of God's story of grace if we possibly could, because we believe we've got to do it all by ourselves. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 in the message version says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Grace is the great antidote to perfectionism. It's actually the only antidote to perfectionism. Brennan Manning in his book, All is Grace, a Ragged Muffin memoir says, this vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and we puff with all our might to try and find something or someone that it doesn't or cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. You know, I can so relate to that huffing and puffing. I reckon the, uh, the Galatians were all over that puffing and puffing trying to find something someone some aspect of their life that just didn't get covered by grace I got to do it the gospel plus the gospel and the gospel and my kind of extra bits that I do just to make sure God really likes me Have you found yourself praying the sinner's prayer a thousand times God if you just you know forgive me for all my sins and come and live in my life I lead people to Christ every week they're just the same people Normally, myself. I'm like, God's saying, but Will, you've been a Christian for 30 years. What are you talking about? I just got to be sure. I just got to pray again. I got to confess again. Sure, we got to kind of confess, but we're confessing something we've already received. You don't need to pray the sinner's prayer 10,000 times to know that you're a child of God. You've got to start living like the child of God that you already are, living out of grace. Flowing with this gospel, living with confidence, walking into the church which is your house and your home, and treating it like your own. I'd love you not to tiptoe in the door. I'd love you to sit down and then welcome other people extravagantly. Would you like to come and sit in my sitting room? Would you like to sit on this chair next to me? Would you like to read one of my Bibles? Will you, can I get you a coffee from my coffee bar? They're going to hate this at Christchurch, aren't they? It's going to be great though. Walk around extravagantly and own the space because it's yours. It's your church. These are your walls. This is your heating. These are your pews. your Bibles. These are your priests, your team, your worship band. They're all yours. You own every bit of it. It belongs to you because you're part of the family of God. Now you just need to live like it. Live like the kings and queens that you really are. Why don't we stand as we pray? We're going to worship a bit more. Why don't you close your eyes and hold out your hands just as a sign of your willingness to receive confidence in the grace that's already yours. Jesus, we choose to lay aside our non-gospel, our non-Huangelion, no good news. We want to lay down our self-referencing, self-orientated, and self-absorbed view of how we get into heaven, and we place all of our faith, all of our trust, and all of our hope again in Jesus Christ tonight. All is grace, Lord. Would you undo the perfectionism within us? Help us to hold on to the truth that we are already enough, made new, that when you see us, you don't see our sin, but you see the righteousness of your son, Jesus. And Lord, help us now to operate in the context of the body of Christ as people who belong to that body because you've called each and every one of us in your name. Amen.